The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to 
faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Is God changeable or unchangeable? In order to arrive at this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Numbers 23:19. Quote, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and, she, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Unquote. Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 14. Quote, I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent. According to thy ways, and according to thy doings, shall they judge thee, saith the Lord God. Unquote. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, quote, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, unquote. James chapter 1, verse 17, quote, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, unquote. Mr. Ash then contrasts these verses to the following passages. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Quote, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Unquote. Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33. Quote, and the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous at with the wicked? Preadventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Preadventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again, and said, Preadventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, O let not the Lord be angry, 
and I will speak pre-adventure, there shall be thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Preadventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Preadventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place, unquote. Next, Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, quote, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people, unquote. Second Kings chapter 20, verse 1, where in short, Isaiah tells Hezekiah that the Lord says Hezekiah will die and not live, and verse 7, where Isaiah takes a lump of figs, lays it on Hezekiah's boil, and Hezekiah lives. Next we have Numbers chapter 16, verses 20 through 35, and Numbers 16, 44 through 50. Both of these various chapters and verses tell, in short, the story of how Dathan, Korah, Abiram, on and the sons of Elab attempted to usurp and overthrow Aaron, who was chosen and delegated by God as the high priest for the children of Israel. Finally, we have Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, which says, quote, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not, unquote. Now, from these and other verses, Mr. Ash concludes that there is a contradiction in the Bible where, on the one hand, we have a God who never changes, and supposedly another God who changes at will. Further, Mr. Ash wants us to conclude that God is unreliable, capricious, and untrustworthy. Finally, because Mr. Ash believes he has identified instances where God is unreliable, capricious, and untrustworthy, we should dismiss any existence of God at all since, if there were a God, we should expect to see a God and his relationship to creation, both of which agree with Mr. Ash's preconceptions. The dilemma is that Mr. Ash's world and life view preconception starts with the assumption that there is no God and the universe we know was not created by an intelligent being, but rather is a product of mindless random chance. The moment that the Bible or anyone else presents information proclaiming a theistic worldview Mr. Ash is going to dismiss this conclusion, the theory, and all information, no matter how comprehensive, as being an error, because the very premise is in contradiction to Mr. Ash's priori bias. In its foundation, the above apparent contradiction is driven by a basic categorical fallacy regarding the nature and attributes of God. Secondly, Mr. Ash's conclusion is faulty because his worldview is faulty. 
because Mr. Ash assumes that he is the ultimate source for authority in the universe, he theorizes that his ability to comprehend and reason exceeds that of God. And in other words, Mr. Ash believes that his finite mind and understanding is equal to or superior than infinite God. Mr. Ash cannot abide to accept that by definition, if God is infinite, then man who is finite will never be able to fully comprehend God. If God is infinite and man is finite, then it also follows that there is no language which is going to fully describe the infinite attributes of God. It would truly be akin to attempting to fully describe the beauties and intricacies of a rainbow sunset to a person who has been blind from birth. With this summary, let us look at the specifics of the verses quoted by Mr. Ash which supposedly create a contradiction. First, we have Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Quote, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Unquote. The main word in question which causes the confusion is the word translated, quote, repented, unquote. If we exclusively go with this translation, then unfortunately focusing exclusively upon the modern definition of the word repentance, Mr. Ash comes away with the idea that God did something, i.e. create mankind, and now he is sorry for doing something wrong or for making an error. However, the Hebrew word translated quote, repented, unquote, can just as properly be translated, quote, be moved to pity, have compassion, or suffer grief, unquote. Thus, in context with God's observation that the wickedness of man had become great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, God was, quote, moved to pity, having compassion, or suffering grief, unquote, as a result of the sin and rebellion of man. So, Mr. Ash's categorical fallacy is that he assumes that God is changing in one or more of his essential attributes, which are immutable. However, the correct view is that it is man who has changed, and as a consequence, man's change incurs certain logical and predictable reactions based upon God's unchanging attributes. In this case, man went from the covering image of God's nature in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which was, quote, very good, unquote, to what we see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, some eight generations later. In the first case, God is pleased because man is covered by his faith in God's righteousness. In the second case, God is displeased and sorrowful 
because man has chosen to rebel and will now experience God's justice. In the end, it is not God changing his attributes, nature, or character. It is man changing and encountering God at different angles of God's immutable nature and character and obtaining different results and consequences because of man's choices and decisions. Next, we have Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33, wherein God converses with Abraham regarding the fate of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. In this example, Mr. Ash believes that Abraham argues with God and is able to change his mind about how many righteous people in Sodom are required to avoid its destruction. Supposedly, God starts out with 50 being the minimum and changes his mind five times to arrive at a minimum of 10. Here, Mr. Ash simply fails to correctly read the verses he cites and makes his conclusion via facts, not in evidence. By looking at the story in context and parsing the verses in question, we see a very obvious and different conclusion than that of Mr. Ash. To be blunt, the entire incident and the conversation between Abraham and God is there by analogy to point out the overall measuring stick which God uses for salvation. In point of fact, the reality is that whether we are talking about Sodom and Gomorrah or the world in general, there are never any who are righteous by their own merits in God's eyes, according to Romans chapter 3. Thus, Abraham, like Every man can start out at a billion and work his way down to ten or even zero and God will say that he will spare mankind if he can find any righteous. But the truth is that none are righteous except God and thus we all have the just declaration of destruction. Remember God's responses to Abraham are based upon the, quote, if, unquote, proposition of man's potential, quote, unquote, righteousness. However, however, as in the case of Abraham, God imputes or counts Abraham as righteous based upon Abraham's trust and faith in God and his provision. Likewise, the righteous which God is looking for in Sodom and Gomorrah will be as a result of God's free gift and grace to those who trust him. So, in these verses, we see Abraham presenting a series of hypothetical situations to God. Abraham starts out with 50 righteous people and works his way down to 10. In each case, God states that he will spare the city if there are that many righteous people. What Mr. Ash fails to remember is that in and of themselves, there were no righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. If there were righteous people in the city, it would only be as a result of God's righteousness imputed to them by faith. 
It's important to remember that the differing numbers referred to as quote-unquote changes come about as a result of Abraham, who is in essence trying to guess God's will, not God's will, which is changing as a result of Abraham's supposed bartering. Another way to understand this is to realize God already knew what was going to happen and that only four people would be spared in Sodom and Gomorrah, and his minimum was ten. Now, if in this situation I ask without knowing whether fifty is sufficient, then the obvious answer is yes. Likewise, forty-five, forty, thirty, and twenty. Each number above God's determination, in this case 10, would be a correct number based upon God's original determination, assuming, or if, there were that many more righteous people. There is no change or contradiction on God's part. There is only a change of numbers on Abraham's part in order to guess what God's will is. In the end, God destroyed the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah because he could only find four righteous people. Next, we have Exodus chapter 32, verse 14. Quote, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Unquote. Now, in terms of context, Exodus chapter 32, verse 14 and the accompanying text have to do with the incident where the children of Israel, who have recently been delivered from Egypt, are now encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses is summoned to the mountaintop, where God reveals and delivers his Ten Commandments to Moses. As Moses returns to God's people, he discovers that God's people have already broken the law and have returned to idol worship. Moses then destroys the initial set of the Ten Commandments as God prepares to destroy his people. Moses finally becomes an intercessor for God's people requesting mercy, at which point God spares those who respond to being on Moses' side. With this in context, we must observe two important things relative to Mr. Ash's question and the supposed contradiction. First, once again, as with Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Hebrew word translated, quote, repented, unquote, can just as properly be translated, quote, be moved to pity, have compassion, or suffer grief, unquote. Second, Mr. Ash frequently fails to remember that the Bible is by its own declaration a book which often goes far beyond mere historical narrative to provide various accompanying spiritual truths via literary devices such as types. An example of this is the manna, first mentioned in Exodus chapter 16, verse 15, and following. 
In this case, we are told that the manna was a literal physical substance which existed historically in the narrative of Exodus. At the same time, Jesus himself reveals in John chapter 6, verse 58, and others, that he was and is the substance of the manna which came from heaven to earth and which sustains God's people. Likewise, we are told in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25, that the law, i.e. the Ten Commandments, is the schoolmaster intended to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law is a type, and Jesus is the substance who is the creator, sustainer, and fulfillment of the law. When Mr. Ash reads Exodus, as with everything else in the Bible, Mr. Ash can only see a linear, one-dimensional story limited to historical narrative. Mr. Ash cannot or will not allow for the types, the shadows, and the analogies which give insight into the larger spiritual truths and realities which exist because Mr. Ash's worldview assumption of materialism categorically denies the spiritual dimension. So, with Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, at Al, we do have a narrative of events which happened in history. At the same time, as was pointed out in the 10th episode of Moses the Deliverer, we have a type presented which points to the larger substance of the truth of salvation. By summary, Moses is the type of Christ who is God's chosen to deliver God's people from their bondage of sin, which is Egypt. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, Moses is seen coming down from Mount Sinai, which is the very presence of God, with God's perfect law, i.e. the Ten Commandments, just as Jesus came to his people from God's presence, and was the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. Then, and now, mankind has already broken the law. All have sinned. We all serve our own lusts and other gods. This is the reality that Moses and Jesus find when we meet them. Because we have sinned, we have rebelled. We are worthy of death and hell. However, Moses, like Jesus, both act as our intercessor before God. It is only because of Jesus' intercession that God's just wrath is poured out on Christ for those who respond to Jesus as being on his side, just as the Israelites did respond to being on Moses' side. Thus, Mr. Ash believes there is a contradiction because his one-dimensional view sees God wanting to destroy all and then changing his mind to destroy some and save others. However, the theological truth is that based upon our merits, God is justified to destroy all and save none. 
At the same time, God, in his sovereign will, chooses to save some according to his grace and mercy. Both are true. The change is God's intervention in the person of Jesus Christ, here typified by Moses in this story, to exemplify God's attributes and his relationship to mankind. God's intervention changes the outcome for man, which outcome was as a result of man's choice to sin and change his original relationship to God. In the end, Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, quote, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people, unquote, should be understood and explained parallel to John 10.10, 10, which says, quote, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly, unquote. In both cases, one can say that there is change. However, the change in view is not some humanistic error on the part of God. If anything, there is a pre-planned event in mind whereby God reconciles his chosen elect to himself through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything from Genesis chapter 3 to John chapter 19 verse 30 where Jesus declared that it is finished should be understood to be progressive revelation pointing to this reality. Certainly, Exodus chapter 32 verse 14 would fall within the description of biblical narratives which demonstrate this truth. With this in mind, Exodus chapter 32 verse 14 would not be a contradiction regarding the nature of God. Instead, this selection amply and beautifully demonstrates the consistent plan and will of God regarding his redemptive plan which existed before the world began. Next, we have 2 Kings chapter 20 verse 1. Quote, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thy house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Unquote. And verse 7, which says, quote, And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he, I, Hezekiah, recovered. Unquote. Here, in these verses, Mr. Ash wants to emphasize that there is a change in God's character and attributes, which is clearly contradictory according to the Bible. However, verse 2 and 3, referring to Hezekiah, says, quote, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore, unquote. Verse 2 and 3 point out that Hezekiah sincerely repented 
of his current sin and ask God to be merciful in recalling his former obedience. Thus, the change is that of Hezekiah's heart, not God's character. This incident is actually consistent with God's overall character and nature. When we are or remain in rebellion, God can and does use many methodologies to bring people to repentance, to bring situations into alignment to accomplish his larger purpose. When people respond to God, God responds to people. So we can rightly say that Hezekiah's sickness was as a result of Hezekiah's rebellion and was permitted according to God's permissive will. Hezekiah's healing was as a result of God's mercy based upon God's grace when Hezekiah repented and his heart changed. So if we're going to insist on using the word quote-unquote change regarding God, then we need to realize that the change in question is one of consequence outcomes based on man and his responsibilities and choices, not God's and his essential character, nature, or being. Next, as we look at Numbers 16, verses 20 through 35, and Numbers chapter 16, verses 44 through 50, each tell the story of how Dathan, Korah, Abiram, On, and the sons of Elib attempted to usurp and overthrow Aaron, who was chosen and delegated by God as the high priest for the children of Israel. Mr. Ash finds contradiction because in verse 21, God says, quote, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment, unquote. Then, in verses 46 through 50, God instructs Moses and Aaron to take fire and incense from the altar and make atonement for the people. Moses and Aaron do so, and as a result, the plague is stayed. Now, here again, Mr. Ash labors under the confusion that there is a change regarding God's nature, character, and attributes. But once again, the fact is that the only change is that of outcomes as a result of each person's standing before God. As was pointed out in episode 13 of Moses the Deliverer, Numbers chapter 20 through 50, is a narrative of an historical account. At the same time, it is a narrative which provides a typological glimpse of spiritual truths. Namely, Moses and Aaron are the types of Jesus and his role as a deliverer and mediator high priest between God and man. Dathan, Korah, Abiram, On, and the sons of Elib and their group are the type of man who believe that they are good enough by their own merits to approach God, as is the role of the high priest. Not surprisingly, as Romans chapter 3 teaches, we are all fallen short of God, and any attempt to approach God outside Christ, who is the substance of Moses and Aaron, will result in death or a plague. The good news is that God has prepared a way of salvation. Here, Moses and Aaron, the type of Christ, go throughout his people to make atonement 
and God's wrath is stayed. So, once again, there is no contradiction. The Bible has an integral message, which is to tell the story of God's redemptive love and relationship with his people. Finally, we have Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, quote, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not, unquote. Now, as usual, Mr. Ash labors under the assumption that when the Bible says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, quote, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, unquote, that God is incapable of making any changes to anything ever. Mr. Ash never stops to think that there are different kinds of change. In this case, the change in question is one regarding God's nature, character, and attributes. Insofar as God's nature, character, and attributes are concerned, he never changes. But God is not monolithic as Mr. Ash assumes. God has many attributes, including righteousness, justice, mercy, compassion, and love. Each of God's attributes are perfect and immutable. Mankind, however, is mutable and fallen. Thus, in general, when mankind is in a right relationship to God, God will demonstrate mercy, compassion, and love. Conversely, when, in general, mankind is in rebellion to God, God will demonstrate righteousness and justice. This is exactly the case of Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 and many other verses which Mr. Ash quotes. Each demonstrates a change of circumstances regarding man as a result of man's choices. In each case, God simply responds to man's respective choices based upon one or more of God's immutable attributes, a man experiences the logical consequences thereof. We conclude then that, insofar as God is concerned, there is no contradiction because the changes which Mr. Ash sees in these verses are not changes involving God's immutable nature and attributes. They are, instead, changes involving man and man's choices as a result of man's mutable nature. Now, in all to date in this series, we have examined and answered 22 questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's Word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and gullible. However, in truth, these 22, 
and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due to, in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in